um, uh, as we begin the sermon. Father God, I just want to thank you for this time that we have to worship you. Um, as we've collected tithes and offerings, we pray that uh, they would use, be used to further your work. Um, and I just want to pray that you would bless uh, those funds in a special way. Father, um, I also want to ask that uh, you would be with us as we um, kind of enter into a special moment of the worship where we study your word as we read together and as we uh, think about you and, and uh, what you've done for us. And I just want to pray that you would bless this time, uh, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, you know uh, the busyness of the week, the stresses of the week for each of the individuals in this room. And I just want to pray that your spirit would minister to people today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're finishing up our series um, from uh, the, the first epistle of John. And um, Jinha started us out about a month ago, and she covered the science of confession. And so for those of you who haven't been able to make it for the rest of the series, if the topic or uh, the topics interest you, then you can go ahead and uh, go online. We've, our church has a YouTube channel, and you can watch, uh, you can catch up on the remainder of the series. So the first message was entitled, The Science of Confession. Uh, the second message was entitled, um, or the second message was about how or what it means to walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? Now, before I continue on, is it better if I just stay put, or if I walk around, is that going to create extra stresses? I'll just stay put. Um, and today we're going to be talking about what is so great about Jesus. What is so great about Jesus? A number of years ago, um, I used to spend a fair amount of time near the state library. I used to spend a fair amount of time at the state library. And uh, what I would do there is I would give out, I would, I would administer spiritual surveys where I would ask people about their spirituality or religious beliefs. And um, it was kind of a, it's, it's kind of interesting now as someone, well, this was probably like 10 years ago that I used to do this. And it's kind of interesting now as I'm kind of older, I walk through the streets of the city and there are always people who are trying to um, ask you questions and stop stop uh, the, the, the passerbyers, um, and they usually try to raise funds for different things like the Coast Guard or for, um, I know UNICEF um, has volunteers out there or, or employees out there who try to sign people up. And it's always interesting because in the city, people are so busy and they're trying to get to their destinations that if you try and stop them and ask them questions or ask them to fill out a survey, generally people are kind of like, I'm busy, I don't have time, or they'll try to avoid contact, eye contact and kind of walk around you. And I always stand and watch them, and I'm kind of like, no, nah, you're doing it wrong. You got to go to like the state library where people are sitting down. And that way, you know they're not too busy to talk to you. And what you do is you go, and you sit right next to them, and you're like, hi, can I ask you a few questions? And they're sitting there. They're not going to go anywhere, so inevitably they have to start a conversation with you. There's a reason why I don't do surveys anymore. But uh, anyway, that's how I used to do it. I used to sit next to people and I'd ask them questions. And one of the questions on the survey was, in your opinion, if you believe that the Bible were read and followed today, would it solve the problems of the world? And I want to say about 8 out of 10 people would say no. And every now and then, I would meet someone who is a Christian, and they would say, yes, I do believe if the Bible were read and followed today, that it would solve the problems of the world. But what I got from that experience was that the majority of the world, the majority of um, the population, at least here in Melbourne, kind of doesn't see the Bible as a relevant, uh, as a relevant book. The majority of the world doesn't see the, the necessity of Jesus. And so today I want to ask the question, 
what's so great about Jesus? There are a lot of ideas and teachings surrounding Jesus. For example, the virgin birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And the question is, how are those ideas relevant to my everyday life? And so today, I'm going to try, this is my attempt at sharing the practical good that is found in believing in Jesus Christ. The practical good that is found in believing in Jesus Christ. Our opening text is 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. And it reads, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? Is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John presents the world as problematic, and John presents Jesus as the solutions to the problem of the world. And before I kind of go off on a rant on what the world means, John actually defines his own terminology, which is nice, because I think a lot of times it's easy to say, the world is bad, without actually knowing exactly what that means. But we've got 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And John says here, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world can be defined by things that cause us to focus on ourselves. Uh, the, uh, the definition of the, of the world can be described as prioritizing our human physical needs above God's and above others. Worldliness is also an attitude of elitism. You know, that, there's that phrase, the pride of life. There's kind of that subtle sense of, I am better than you because of some arbitrary factor. Now, the tricky thing about the way of the world is that chasing the world seems right. There are temporary benefits to chasing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There are benefits. If you prioritize pleasure, wealth, and status, it leads to temporary happiness, right? There's some good that comes out of it. But the problem is that worldliness leads to a subtle deconstruction of the happiness of our lives, the happiness and sustainability of our lives and our relationships. So Jesus is saying here that the way of Jesus is contrary to the world. There's something about Jesus that provides a sustainable happiness, uh, a a sustainable quality of life in our relationships. Jesus' way does not prioritize pleasure of self. It prioritizes God and love for others. And yet there's this deep quality of love. There's a deep quality of life that can be found there. So John, in the closing chapters of this first epistle, chapters 3, 4, and 5, highlights a couple problems that are found in worldliness. And so I want to highlight some of those things. The first problem from this passage is that worldliness presents the problem of self-centered living. Worldliness is about prioritizing yourself. And here's the challenge. If you focus on prioritizing yourself, then at some point in time, you cannot prioritize others, right? When your primary focus is living for you, then inevitably there will be a time where you are against someone else. 
This especially becomes problematic in moments of conflict. Jinha, last week, um, we were kind of reflecting on the weekend on Saturday and Sunday, and Jinha, or, or mainly Saturday, and Jinha looks at me and she says, you know, um, I'm so tired, I had to take care of the kids all day. That was kind of like the opening phrase. And my response um, was then listing all the moments that I took care of the kids. And I was like, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning when Joshua cried, yeah, I went into his room so that, you know, you could continue resting. And then I, I clothed the kids and got them ready for church. And then I spent time with Micah during church service. And instead of then looking at Jinha and saying, hey, you sound like you're overwhelmed. Like, I'm really sorry that it was really busy. I went on the defensive and I was kind of saying, let me show you all the ways that you're wrong. Prioritizing self over thinking about the needs of others, it complicates, it makes relationships quite difficult. We're living in a time where the trend in society is polarization, self-interest, and division. The Sydney Morning Herald wrote an article um, entitled, The Fundamental Operating Model of Australian Politics is Breaking Down. So if you're interested, um, there was an article that was um, posted in April this year. And uh, in this article, they published some research from the Australian election study. And uh, basically, they were kind of showing the, the voting trends and the political stances over the last 20 years. And uh, in 1996, 37% of politicians considered themselves to be moderate. Uh, yeah, we're somewhere in the middle. Fast forward to 2016, and 10% of politicians consider themselves moderate. So in other words, as time is going by, people are having more and more hardline stances where there's less bipartisan relationships where people are saying, you know what, I don't want to be in the middle. I want to just, I want to be, I want uh, what's best for me and everyone else. Well, too bad for you. Now, this article has some interesting theories as to why the political landscape has changed over the last 20 years. And uh, one of the theories listed is that in the past, people were more committed to community groups such as church. And church bound diverse groups of people together, which then normalized people's views um, and political ideas. And if you think about our church and you look around the room, there's a diverse representation of people And oftentimes from the front, we preach unity, right? We're saying, in the midst of conflict, forgive one another. So there's this very strong unifying aspect to this kind of particular community group. There's also an aspect of our church service that we call the exchange, where we gather around together around the tables, and we share our different views. We listen to one another, we learn from one another, and then we study scripture. And we let the Bible then give us a different perspective or a different worldview of how we can then understand our lives. I just thought it was interesting that there was a left-to-center newspaper that was saying, hey, church can help balance out society and cultivate unity. But the article continued on, in the 21st century, binding forces are weakening and fewer people are members of churches and other community groups. More Australians are isolated in partisan communities. Or in other words, we like to hang out with friends that think the same way that we do. And we usually get our news through personalized social media feeds. So the article highlights a trend that people are polarizing themselves or prioritizing themselves over others. 
And this may not sound like a bad thing. Um, I have to watch out for my own interest, right? Like if you're on the airplane and they say, uh, in, the, uh, in the case of emergency, when the face mask drops, drops down and the oxygen starts flowing, what do you do first? You take care of yourself, right? You, you first put the mask on yourself, and then you can turn and help those who need help. And so you would think that this type of living, prioritize me first, is natural. But the practical implications of this is that looking out for me first is leading to the deconstruction, in this example, of democracy in Australia. It's becoming less and less effective. So in the book of John, John says, Jesus is a solution to selfishness. He's a solution to self-centered living. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, John makes a statement, God is love. God is love. And I'm just going to read the highlighted portion. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And here's the first point that I want to highlight when it comes to Jesus provides a solution for self-centered living. Jesus initiates love. Jesus initiates love. I don't know if you've ever thought about the unwritten rules of engagement with potential partners. There's kind of like this unwritten rule of engagement. Who's going to initiate the conversation and how? And uh, I guess on one end of the spectrum, you've got like people who will go up and drop like the pickup line, right? Like, hey, are you tired? Because you've been running around in my mind all day long. Like some, something ridiculous like that, right? And there's kind of like this, how do we engage and initiate with one another? There's this unwritten rule. There's a scene from a movie. It's called The Imitation Game. And uh, there's this scene that really depicts this, depicts this well. Helen and Joan are chatting together. Hugh and Alan are chatting together at a separate table. But Helen and Hugh are interested in each other. Here's how the conversation, here's how the conversation goes. Who's Alan's friend? Hugh? Ah, oh, he's a bit of a cat, actually. So my type then? Well, I'll introduce you. No, he'll come over. Are you sure? Yes. I smiled at him 15 minutes ago and haven't looked back at him since. Hey, who's with Joan? Huh? Oh, that's Helen. She works with her. She's really pretty. She wants me to come over. What? How on earth do you know that? She smiled at me a while back and she hasn't looked back since. People give all sorts of nonverbal cues to communicate openness to others. And as an initiator, if we don't pick up on those cues, we're not likely to initiate. How and when do you know to initiate? Jesus, in this example, initiates love. Not only is he willing to, not only is he willing to say hello, he takes the awkwardness right out and says, I'm interested in you before we are interested or attracted to him. Jesus loves us before we even respond to his love. Here's a second observation from the passage. Jesus commits. At the end of the verse, or at the end of the passage, it says, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Jesus gave his life for you. He's all in. He makes provision for moments where 
we're going to mess up. And he does this by dying on the cross. I think there are times where we hesitate to engage with people. One reason why we might hesitate to engage with someone is because we are not sure they're worth it. We're not sure if they're worthy. Ah, do I want to spend the rest of my life with you? I don't know. Are you good enough? Then there's a second reason why we don't want to engage with people. Because we're unsure of ourselves. We're unsure of our own worthiness. Am I going to mess this relationship up? Oh, I know how much of a difficult person I am. Do I really want to commit to this and ruin the other person's life as well? What I love about this is that Jesus takes care of both uncertainties in the act of committing himself. He reveals his goodness by dying for us. You know, if there's someone who's willing to sacrifice all for you, you know there's something special about that person. Jesus ministers to the fact where we're wondering, is he really worth it? Then for those of us where we're not sure if we're worth it, Jesus dies for our mistakes. He's saying, hey, I'm committed to this relationship. No matter how badly you mess up, I've already died for you. You can't mess up bad enough to the point where I'm not going to forgive you because I've already forgiven you. There's no way that this is going to fail unless you give up. Jesus communicates commitment. In his death for us, he forgives us. In his death for us, he shows us how much he loves us. The final observation from this passage, Jesus prioritizes us. And in this, the middle of this verse, it says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Notice what's highlighted in this passage, the fact that Jesus loves. And really what's being communicated is that he loves unconditionally, he initiates. The foundation of God's love is based on what he has done for us. God's love is focused on his actions over our actions. And I suppose this is done because if God's love is dependent on what we do, then we'll always be wondering, have I done enough? Is what I have done good enough for God to say, yup, that is deserving of my love? And yet in this passage, he says, listen, real love is focusing on what I have done. The love of God revealed in Jesus is the solution to self-centered living. Now, logically, you would think that the solution to selfishness is self-denial. And I often practice this as a father. If my children are kind of getting into the point where they're like, oh, I want, I want, I want, all right, you don't get anything. And I just kind of assume that's going to solve the problem. But what I love about this, uh, this funny story, um, my brother and I used to argue over toys all the time, uh, primarily Transformers. And uh, my dad would get in the habit of rolling down his window while he's driving. And if we keep arguing, he's like, give me the toy. And we would give him the toy and he would throw it out the window. And it was always on the way to work or on the way to church. And so I'm sure there's one road in the state of Michigan where it's like littered with G.I. Joes and Transformers. <laughs> But yeah, like the, the, the natural, logical human response to selfishness is then to say, okay, then you practice self-denial. But the difference between human love and divine love is God doesn't say, okay, now you get nothing. What he does is he says, let me give you something that genuinely satisfies. Let me give you a divine love. See, there's this God-shaped hole, hole in our heart where there's unsatiable desires where it's like, God, I just want something. Or we, we may not even be saying, God, I want something. It's just, I want something. 
wealth, status, happiness, comfort. You can fill in the blank. And here, the heart cannot be satisfied outside of consistent, incredible love. Jesus communicates he wants to give that to us. Now, that doesn't mean what we do isn't important. Um, What we do is important. God is just saying the foundation of understanding love is focusing on him. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, the text says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We sustain love by giving love. We sustain a connection with God and grow in that connection by obeying God. Now, today I was really more focusing on the solution to selfishness, which is receiving love. Um, But, you know, looking at the last point, this is also a part of that solution. A great remedy of selfishness is actually giving love to somebody. If there's a moment where you feel really grumpy and you feel really unhappy, do a good deed for someone. See how it affects you. The second problem that John highlights, the problem of sin. Worldliness perpetuates this problem of sin. And this is more of a Christian worldview problem. Um, But I think it still holds some sort of relevance, but this is going to be really a very Christian thing. I don't know if there are people online who um, really don't subscribe to a Christian worldview. But going back to that passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, It talks about how Jesus sacrifices for us and he forgives our sins or he takes away our sins. God sends Jesus into the world to do or or to wipe away this problem of sin. But the question is, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be forgiven for sin? What does it mean to have your sins wiped away? In Romans chapter 6, I think Paul does a good job of describing what sin actually is. And there are three categories of sin that I want to highlight. One is sin as a status. Two, sin as a passion. And three, sin as a part of our nature. So let's first talk about the status of sin. In Romans chapter 6 verse 14. It says, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So there are two different statuses that are mentioned here in this passage that are identified in Romans. One status is under law, and the other status is under grace. In other words, when we accept Jesus, we are considered under grace or forgiven. Um, Our mistakes are not held against us because we acknowledge the sacrifice that's made by Jesus. When we do not seek forgiveness, we are considered under law. In other words, our mistakes are held against us, and we are subject to the penalty of breaking the law. The status doesn't change based on behavior. It changes based on belief. And we've read a couple verses here where it says, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the fact that Jesus has forgiven you. And so what I want to highlight is when it comes to the status of sin, our status does not change based on behavior. It changes based on belief. We are saved 
because Jesus has died for us. And if it's true that we're not saved by our actions but by our beliefs, then we are not then lost by our actions. We are lost by our beliefs. That's why the Bible is filled with examples of saved people who do messed up things, and yet God calls them righteous. So when Jesus forgives our sins, our status of sin changes from condemned to forgiven. Next, I want to talk about sin as a passion. In Romans 6 verse 12, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The passion of sin can be described as this natural desire or as our natural desires that have power to control us. The author of Romans says, don't be ruled by your passions, learn to dethrone them. So while sin remains in you, don't let it reign in you. Now going back to verse 14, let's see if I did this right. No. So going back to verse 14, it says, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, live under the freedom of God's grace. So in other words, the forgiveness of God has the power to free us from the passion of sin. So if forgiveness is the key to freedom, then condemnation is the cell that imprisons us in passion. There's a lady by the name of Beverly Ingle, and she's, been a psycho, or she's a psychotherapist, and she writes, shame, and that word shame, Paul would kind of replace it with a biblical terminology, uh, condemnation. So shame or condemnation causes a lowered self-esteem. It leads to behavior that reinforces that self-image of unworthiness. In other words, when we feel like we're messed up, when we feel uh, super guilty and super shamed by our actions, there's this uh, labeling that goes on. Well, I messed up, so I'm a goof up. And as, as soon as we put that label on us, the tendency is to then continue to live out that label. Well, I'm just a goof up, so I'll just keep goofing up because that's who I am. And it perpetuates this cycle of negative, destructive behavior. And here, when it comes to the passion of sin, Paul is saying the key to freedom from the passion of sin is then experiencing the love and forgiveness of God, right? So that moment where we put that label, I goofed up, therefore I am a goof up, that label changes to, you know what? Even if you goofed up, God still forgives you because you're considered a child of God. It then puts a stop on that negative cycle. It allows us to reassess and say, you know what? I don't feel condemned. Yes, I messed up, but it's okay. I can learn from this and I'm just gonna try and do better next time. It allows us to stop that negative cycle. Meditating or thinking about what Jesus' sacrifice means has the power to break negative cycles. When you feel shame, focus on God's love for you. When you feel unworthy, focus on how valuable Jesus is. Focus on the fact that he sacrificed himself for you. It communicates how valuable you are. You have intrinsic value. The forgiveness of God has the power to free us from the passion of sin. The third thing that I want to focus on is sin as part of our nature, a part of who we are. 
In Romans 6, verse 12 again, it says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So even though we don't let sin reign, sin still remains in our lives. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, uh, Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, it says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. This is a tough pill to swallow because some people are really good. I think for some, we can kind of hang around them and say, yeah, you're definitely born a sinner. But other people, it's kind of like, hey, hold on. I've actually, I've never done anything really bad. Why am I considered a sinner? But let's say from the Christian worldview or from the biblical worldview that you're a good person 99% of the time. That means you still need to be forgiven 1% of the time. And because of that, it makes humanity 100% dependent. See, we're freed from the power of sin. We're freed from the status of sin. Our status changes in Jesus. But when it comes to the nature of sin from this passage, the nature, the human nature doesn't change. Don't let sin reign, but sin remains. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This passage is really um, kind of a unique one because John actually talks about the nature of humanity. He's saying, listen, we don't know what we're going to be like on the other side of uh, eternity. But when Jesus comes, we'll be able to see him as he is and our natures will be transformed. And so it kind of gives this point in history where the nature of sin is then taken care of. And that's basically at his return. So this categorization of sin is helpful to me. Um, and the reason why is because I tend to lump all three of these things together when I think of sin. So I have a sinful nature. I battle unholy habits. And that makes me uncertain of my status. If Jesus saves me from sin, why do I still feel unholy? I'm saved, but why do I still have unholy habits? And the reason why is because of these three aspects of uh, what sin actually means in the Bible. It is quite complicated because there might be moments where you are acting as a holy person. You believe in Jesus, but because of your nature, you kind of, you're not convinced of it yourself. It's like, hey, I should be better than this, but I don't feel better than this. And the whole point of me bringing this up is that when you feel human, when you feel sinful, the point is that that's a normal thing. It's a part of our nature. But the point is saying, Jesus, I recognize you. I recognize your forgiveness. And I'm, I'm, I realize there are habits in my life that I want to change. And that's really what God is looking for. And as we keep trying to mature in our walk with God as we learn to surrender, as we learn to enjoy things that are healthy as opposed to destructive. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Notice what it says here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. I love this verse where it's saying there are times where our heart is uncertain of where we are with God. And what I really like about the assurance of this passage is it's saying, yes, 
Your heart condemns you, but God is greater than your heart. And so the question is, how do you get to the point where you allow God to rewrite the scripts that your heart is telling yourself every single day? Every single day, there'll be moments where you feel like, God, I'm not good enough. Or, uh, God, I don't need you. Different opposite scripts. And yet there are times where John is saying here that God can then speak to your heart and overcome those negative scripts. First John chapter 4, verse 18 talks about this sense of being free from condemnation. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How do you experience the truth of God and overcome that which your heart tells you? There are a few things that um, come to my mind when it comes to experiencing peace with God or experiencing the word of God in your life. The first tip that I want to share is take time and study, uh, take time to study and understand the gospel. There are moments where your heart will not believe what the preacher is saying, which is totally understandable because for those of us who've grown up in the church, we've had people tell us every single weekend, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And it's okay to hear it from somebody else. It's something completely different to go and study it and learn it for yourself. And for me, uh, a turning point in my own walk with God is when I kind of realized, you know, I don't actually know what it means to know Jesus. I don't understand how the gospel works. I don't know. I don't actually know what it means to be saved. And I actually started reading through the book of Romans just by myself. No commentaries. And I just kept reading it over and over and over again. I think for three months straight, I want to say like an hour to two hours every single day, I just sat down and I just kept rereading those passages until I felt like I understand what this is talking about. It's a problem of sin. And that dealing with that uncertainty kind of bridged that gap of uh, doubt, if you will. And so the gospel became personal for me as I studied it. The second thing that helped me is um, there are often times where I'm praying and I'll say, God, um, I just want to sense your presence or God, uh, I just want to experience forgiveness. And there are times where I don't feel the presence of God. There are times where I don't feel forgiveness and what was very helpful was just opening up the Bible to specific passages and reading the Bible a lot aloud in the area where I wasn't sure. And it was kind of this um, interesting experience where I just felt the presence of God. There would be moments where I'd say, God, please forgive me. But I just, I just feel like I'm not good enough. And as I was as I would repeat those promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, First John 1, 9. And I would just kind of read it over and over and over again. Then I kind of realized, you know what? Either this is not true or this is true. And I made that decision, God, I'm, I'm going to believe that you mean what you say. And it had this transforming effect on my life where I just started feeling peace and I started believing God. You mean what you say. And it, it was a very transformative experience. And from that, I felt lots of peace in prayer from that moment or from those moments. The third uh, tip for experiencing uh, peace or that third tip of really internalizing the word of God um, is visualize forgiveness. Visualize forgiveness. And there would be moments where I would just kind of in the quietness of the day, I would just 
picture Jesus on the cross. And as I would picture Jesus on the cross for a moment, I would kind of think, yeah, that actually did happen. Yeah, it makes sense that humanity needs a savior. And then what I would do is I would personalize that. So Jesus is on the cross, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, Roy, I did this for you. And for me, that it, it's deeply meaningful because a lot of times when we kind of throw the phrase out, um, Jesus died um, to, to forgive us of sin, we kind of think it from a corporate or global scale. Jesus died for everybody. But oftentimes, it isn't felt personally. It's easy to say, hard to feel. And so I just found that visual, visualization process quite helpful where I would see Jesus on the cross he would look at me and say, Roy, this is for you. And, and I just found that uh, God became a lot more personal, a lot more um, experienced, and there there'd be moments where I felt forgiveness. And no longer would I just say, yeah, Jesus has forgiven me. Uh, there was this uh, sense of experience that God actually loves me personally. And the point is that God loves you personally, and that experience um, is to be felt by by everybody. So in summary, Jesus is the solution to self-centered living. He gives love that is satisfying. Jesus is the solution to sin. He gives forgiveness. He changes our status. He can change our passions. He doesn't change our nature, this side of eternity. Jesus is also the solution to condemnation. He gives peace. There are moments where we don't feel forgiven, but as we meditate on Jesus, there is, well, actually in, in the passage, uh, John kind of says that the Spirit of God can testify and convict in us that Jesus abides with us. So Jesus is the solution to condemnation. He gives peace. As you think about this, may God bless you. May you experience and feel uh, his presence, his love, and may you be able to know why Jesus uh, is important, and you can answer that question. Well, what is so great about Jesus? And you can speak from a personal experience. May God bless you.